Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, over the last three weeks, <clears throat> we have looked together at Luke's story of what happened on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And this morning, we're going to start a uh, short series that will take us right up to Pentecost on the meaning of Jesus' resurrection for people like you and me. And we're going to do that by looking at a few places in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. So we'll start that uh, right now. Read from Romans 4 for us, verses 16 through 25. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just, uh, we just sang together that we are turning unfilled to you again. And you know, you know uh, the condition of our hearts as we sang those words. Uh, you know if we even were thinking about it while we sang it. Um, we ask, Father, that you would help us gently or uh, powerfully, whatever whatever's needed by your spirit, to be convinced, convinced that that's true, that we need you for food and drink that we need you for bread and life. So Father, help us uh, as we think about this word, draw us close to the word who bears our flesh, who is with you now. We pray this in his name, amen. You know, deep down, people like us long for a good resolution. You know, we don't like loose ends. We, we don't like endings that feel hopeless. We don't like endings that uh, feel untrue. You know, stuff doesn't always need to end in sunshine, but we feel unsettled uh, when things end in ways that don't make any sense. It is that longing for good resolution, for instance, that makes Shakespeare's tragedies work. Even though they all end like in a terrible mess at the end, um, the way that things get there feels true. It feels like they couldn't have ended in any other way. Right? That longing for a good resolution is why uh, when sometime in the, in the summer of 1980, uh, I walked out into the harsh sunshine after seeing a matinee of The Empire Strikes Back, uh, 
that longing for good resolution is why nine-year-old me uh, felt like I had fallen into a hole <laughs> that I was never going to be able to get out of. I mean, Darth Vader is Luke's father. Is that even true? And if it is, what does it mean? You know, showrunners and directors and novelists, they all tap into that part of who we are to, to sell us their stuff. As long as human beings have been telling stories to one another, we have been telling stories that tap into the deep desire for good resolution. But it's not just about the stories we tell, because we know, right, that those stories only work because this is the actual life that we live. This is how we are. That longing for good resolution is why we lie awake at night. That longing for good resolution is why we ruminate over the things that we can't change. It's why we feel deep regret over the things that we can't change. That longing for good resolution uh, is why we work really hard to do good to people in our lives. That longing for resolution is why giving of ourselves at work or with our families or friends feels sometimes ecstatically beautiful. That longing for good resolution is usually the first cause of all of the best parties and the best celebrations that we've ever been at in all of our lives. And I don't think we have that in us. I don't think we have that longing for a good resolution as a result of chance or conditioning or something like that. I think we have the, that longing inside of us because at the heart of existence, at the heart of everything that is, there is a God who made everything good. He made humans very good. He made us to experience each other as very good. He made us to experience the rest of creation as very good. He made us to enjoy him forever. We were literally made for good resolution. <laughs> All of us, every one of us. But you know, we know something has happened. Something has ruptured all of that. That's made it elusive. It's made good resolution hard to come by. It slips through our fingers sometimes like sand. All of the very goods of creation have been messed up. So sometimes they feel like they're lost to us. And that's why the Apostle Paul's description of God, of our God, that's at the heart of that story that we just read together is so deeply meaningful. And it's so deeply important. He is, Paul says, the God who gives life to the dead. <laughs> he is the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. The very good, if this is true, the very good is not lost. If that's who he is, the very good is not lost because God can fix what we have broken. If that's who God is, then the good resolution will come. And it will come because God has never met a dead end that, he, that could stop him from doing all of the good that he has intended for you and me. And that is the through line of that part of the letter that we just read together. And Paul gets to it by talking about Abraham, who he says is the father of us all. So we, uh, we've jumped into the rumbling freight train that is Paul's letter to his friends in Rome. Uh, we've jumped in at really kind of the end of the first leg of the journey. There's no way really to be able to talk about all that he has done in the first three chapters of that letter. So what I'll do is just summarize them in a few sentences and then later this afternoon you can check my work by, by reading those chapters. 
In short, what Paul has said is that all humans, all humans have had a part in breaking and unmaking the very goods of God's creation. All of us. Instead of letting God be God, he says our first parents played God, and that was the beginning of the unraveling of absolutely everything. And since then, we have been hiding from him, and we have been hiding from each other, and, and we have uh, been hurting ourselves and hurting each other. You know, it's, it's not all of the time that we do these things. It's not always the worst that it could possibly be at all times. The point that Paul is making is there isn't one of us whose hands don't have that stain on it. We have all failed to love God. We've all failed to love each other. We've all had a hand in unmaking the very good of God's creation. As Paul puts it in, in chapter 3, verse 19, the whole world is accountable for this. And here's the amazing thing about this letter. Here's the thing that shocks me every time that I think about it is that Paul presents all of this. He says all of this. And then he says, this is a problem for God. <laughs> it's not like, well, people, you've messed up and now what are you going to do to fix this? No, Paul breathtakingly frames this as God's problem. How is God going to resolve this? How is God going to fix this? How is he going to restore the very good that he made us for and the very good that we long for? How is God going to restore our rebellious and running away selves and lead us into the good resolution that he made us for and that we long for? How is God going to fix this? It's amazing. And if you think about it, it's really the only way to frame a question that makes any sense. It's not like we're going to solve the problem. And so God starts to solve it by making promises that he aims to keep no matter what. Which brings us and uh, Paul back to Abraham. Because Abraham had received one of those great promises that God made. In Genesis 12, you know, God makes a promise to Abraham. First, though, he asks he and Sarah to leave everything that they know, everything that they love, family and friends and land. And to just start wandering around until he tells them where to go. And with that comes the promise. He says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through your family, every other family in the world will be blessed. It is a staggering promise. A beautiful promise. And so Abraham and Sarah leave everything and they go. But if you don't know the big twist in this story, here it is. Abraham is 75 when they leave, and he and Sarah don't have any kids. <laughs> you know, this, this whole blessing to the world thing hinges on making a great family out of them. So, of course, it would be nice if they had just one kid when things get started, but they don't. And, you know... Abraham is aware of this. He's not a biologist or anything like that, but he knows enough about his own body, and he knows enough about Sarah's body to know that things were stacked against them. Like, God, we've already been trying this our whole lives, kind of stacked against them. Like, impossibly, absurdly, ridiculously dead-end, no logical reason for hope stacked against them. Abraham knew all of that. He wasn't dumb. And in verse 17, here's what Paul says Abraham does anyway. Here's what Abraham does when he hears that absurd promise. In hope, he believed against hope. 
In hope, he believed against hope. If you've ever wondered where does the phrase hope against hope come from, it's right here in Romans 4. And there is a reason that people who have never read the Bible a day in their life say that phrase. It's because it gets at the heart of the human longing for good resolution. It gets at the heart of the longing for good resolution that lingers in every single human being. We have been made to hope against hope. That's what we're for. And here's what it meant for Abraham. It meant that Abraham, in that particular moment, it meant that Sarah, in that particular moment, persevered to hope in the promise of God, even when every reasonable human expectation, and honestly, every other human being in their lives would have told them, it is not possible for this promise to be kept. They persevered in hope in the promise of God. And church, i got to tell you, nothing about the nature of faith has changed from that moment until this very moment right now. The life of faith is never some calculus about probabilities. Like I'll believe if I, if I think the odds of doing so are favorable or I'll believe if I can manage risk down to where it doesn't really matter that much if it all falls apart. That's math or something. It's not faith. Faith is always resting solely in the God who makes the promises. And the only other consideration, the only other factor that comes into play is the God who is making the promise. And Abraham staked it all. He staked it all on believing that God is the one who gives life to the dead. And who calls into existence the things that do not exist. So I don't know, you know, what feels dead end in your life. I don't know the places at which you feel like you've reached the end of your rope, you know, physically or mentally or spiritually. I don't know. I've got my own list of stuff in my own life. I, I don't know. The relationships you feel like you've messed up so badly that they're beyond repair. I don't know about the addiction you feel in prison by. I don't know the stuff that keeps you awake at night with regret. But I do know that there is a God who gives life to the dead. There is a God who can call into existence things that do not exist. And I know that he has made us for him. And I know that he has made promises to us. And it is his voice that you hear. It is his voice that you hear calling you to faith, calling you to rest in him. Every longing that you have ever had for good resolution in your life, I'm telling you it's his voice. It's him. Now listen, you know, it's not like Abraham didn't wonder about things from time to time. Of course he did. He, he didn't have some otherworldly faith. He had a deeply human faith, the kind of faith that you and I might have. In fact, it's one of those moments of wavering, actually, that Paul is drawing from here in Romans uh, 4. It's Genesis 15, which was our Old Testament lesson. It takes place about 25 years after Abraham and Sarah left everything. He's about 100 years old now. They still don't have a child. <laughs> and I guess one night Abraham is just lying in his tent, you know. Afraid, maybe angry, wondering why, why? Am I the fool? <laughs> Am I the fool here for leaving everything, dragging Sarah around on this wild goose chase? 
And God slips up to him in a vision and starts talking. He says, don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. And Abraham says, well, okay, God, but what are you going to give me? For I continued childness, childless. You know, like, uh, like God needed to be reminded about how things were working out. And God's response, of course, is not to say to Abraham, okay, I'm fed up with you. That's the last straw. I'm going to find someone else to make a great nation out of. No, his response to Abraham is all, all of grace. Takes Abraham outside into the night. And there on that great dark plain, he tells him to look up into the sky and it's flooded with stars. And he says, number them, Abraham. Count them if you can. So will your offspring be. You won't even be able to count them, Abraham. And he hears that. And it's enough. Paul says he didn't weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which he reckoned was as good as dead. He didn't weaken in his own faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief, no unbelief, Paul says, made him waver concerning the promise of God. Abraham, in that moment, looking out at the stars, was fully convinced that God would be able to do what he had promised he would do. And there, looking up into that night sky full of stars, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. <laughs> Abraham had faith, a faith that was birthed, a faith that was evoked, a faith that was drawn out by the God who gives life to the dead, a faith that was given to him by the God who calls things something that a minute ago were nothing. And God, based on that faith, reckoned him as one of his, Abraham, you are righteous, you are a son forever. A good resolution. Which leads to a host of other good resolutions, <laughs> like uh, a son and a great nation, and one day an even greater son. So this is the story that Paul tells to his friends in Rome. It's a story about the lavish grace of God. It's a story about the calling out of Abraham's faith so that he would be opened up to that lavish grace. And in verse 23, Paul effortlessly ties that story back into the problem that he had spent three chapters saying that God had. <laughs> the one we talked about, how is God going to fix this? How is God going to restore the very good for which he made us in the world? How is he going to restore our rebellious and running away selves to the good resolution that he made us for, that we all deep inside long for? And Paul says like this. But the words that was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours too. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul wants you and me and everybody to know that Abraham's story, it's our story too. We're in it. We're there. It was a story that was always leading to one place, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where the power and the beauty of a God who brings life to the dead 
where the power and the beauty of a God who calls things to existence that never were, where those things are most clearly seen, where that power and that beauty are most fully and perfectly and articulately spoken. The death and resurrection of Jesus, that's how he'll solve the problem. The human evil in which we have participated that has disfigured the world, that's distorted all of the very goods of creation, that evil has been judged at the cross of Jesus and drained of all of its corrosive power forever. In love, he stepped in and took our place. And the resurrection says, this is true. The resurrection is what says this is true. It's absolutely true. The, the resurrection is the vindication of God that gives meaning to the death of Jesus. And it was all for me and you. It was all for us. And this church is one of the most profound meanings of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus means that people like us, we can be counted righteous. We can be forgiven. It means that when we follow Jesus in faith and in repentance, we are given the right to be called the daughters and the sons of God. Forgiveness is one of God's most astonishing gifts. And it ushers us into the good resolution that he made us for. It ushers us into his presence to enjoy him forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would, uh, for those of us who don't have faith, that you would give us faith, that you would call it out, that you would evoke it, that you would craft it in us, that we could look at what you have done and believe. Father, we ask that you would uh, do that uh, for our good so that we can grow up in our faith. We ask uh, that you would do that so that we could become a people that have a part in that promise that you made that through the family of Abraham, all of the families of the earth would find blessing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.